kids head off school this week, and so that uh, bronze tan that I have is from the indoor pot water park we were at. Uh, no, it's, I, I think when, when I'm gone for a little while, it just gives me such perspective. I, I, I really love this church. I really love gathering with you guys, and, um, and now as we get to open up God's word, like, he's going to speak. He, he does that. And we don't have to wait till Sunday for him to do that. Like, we can open up his word anytime. Or maybe it's something you've never read before, and you get the joy of discovery of God is like that, or he has done this. And it's amazing. So let's pray and ask him to speak to us uniquely this morning uh, through his word and through or in spite of me. So, God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have right now in this moment to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you guide us? Would you lead us into the truth that you want us to know? And would you shape us and transform us so that we are people that resemble your word and more importantly, even Jesus himself? So Spirit, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. About a year ago, I read a tweet and it has been kind of rolling through my head at different times. Uh, throughout the last year. I guess you could say it's lived rent-free in my head. Um, But the tweet was this, most pastors make a ton of their decisions based on fear, not faith. And and as I've been thinking about it, like the the, the core motivation of our heart, as I reflected on that, I'm like, well, that's not unique to pastors. That's that's a human thing, isn't it? That, That when it comes to Our decisions that we make day in and day out, so many of us make those decisions based on fear more than we do faith or conviction. Fear of being fat, fear of being rejected, fear of being irrelevant, fear of missing out on something exciting, fear of being found out and not having what it takes, fear of being forgotten. Fear of being persecuted for our faith. Fear of being inconvenienced when we really just want to take it easy. What about you? How many of your decisions do you make out of of a framework of fear rather than a framework of faith? What you choose to eat or not, who you talk to and who you avoid, when you speak and when you remain silent. Even our political discourse has been so shaped by fear rather than conviction, right? I mean, you, you just have to wade a little bit into the waters, and, and, and it's like our politics is shaped not by what we're for, but rather by the fear of the other, right? And candidate A will present themselves as the only hope to the doomsday of if candidate B is elected, or vice versa, right? And, and if we're honest, there, there are actually probably scary things on both sides. Fear is a powerful motivator, isn't it? Scared of that happening. I don't want that. So I'll choose this in many ways as a false savior. But is, is fear a good motivator? Well, that depends on what you fear, doesn't it? Ultimately. Imagine living in Peter's day as he writes this letter to a group of scattered Christians in Asia Minor trying to live out their faith in a Roman empire that 
sees them and sees nothing but disdain. See, as a Christian, you would have been marginalized and your core beliefs crazy misunderstood. You were probably blamed for much of the day's problems because of your refusal to honor the Roman gods and sacrifice to them. Therefore, anything bad that happened was often seen through the lens, not of like modern atheism or secularism, but through the lens of, well, you brought down the gods' displeasure on us. Therefore, anything bad gets to be blamed on the other. Many of you would have been slaves living under an unjust master, or wives perhaps married to an unbelieving husband. All of us would have found ourselves under a political system where they could pretty much do whatever they wanted without any kind of recourse or pushback. And so in that day, like our day, there was a lot of reasons to live in fear. And yet, Peter calls Christians to the path of Jesus, which is a path of faith and fearing him rather than them. Not to rebellion against authority, but rather humble submission and subversion in an effort to do good. To live our lives in such a way as to be a blessing even when it costs us something. See, whether you're a citizen under the rule of Rome or a subject under the rule or a slave under an unjust master or a wife under the authority of an unbelieving husband, Peter's words of instruction here are one of submission and subversion that we would radically devote our lives to doing what is good, even if it costs. And in chapter 3, verse 8, the book begins to turn from the, the topic of how do we live under unjust or ungodly authority to now how do we suffer well when we do live in a subversive way and it costs us something. But the main charge is kind of the same, that we should be joyfully and humbly devoted to doing what is good. Let's read. First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. We'll go to verse 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if you are slandered, but when you are slandered, those who revile your good character or good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word. We can easily break this section of First Peter into two parts, verses 8 to 12 and 13 to 17. Verses 8 to 12 describe godly character and what, what should be our approach to life, a life devoted to doing good and pursuing humility. Verses 13 to 17 tell us how we are to conduct ourselves when in living that life we suffer for it. 
there's some pushback. So we'll begin in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, this is a really good list of godly character, but it's not very novel. In fact, if you would go to many of the letters in the New Testament, you would see a list similar to this. Like, none of us read this and are like, we're supposed to be humble? Or we should be unified? I mean, it's, it's rather ordinary, and yet, in its ordinariness, it's extraordinary. It's a good list. This is how we ought to conduct ourselves toward one another. Unity of mind literally means unity of spirit. It means thinking the same way, having the same approach, being unified with one another in the church, devoted to the same cause. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time at all, you, you know that sometimes that unity can be quite rare. It's hard to achieve. Getting on the same page with all of these other sinners saved by God's grace. And yet when we see it, it it's a beautiful thing to behold, isn't it? When God's people are all on the same page, moving in the same direction, devoting their lives to the same thing, there is few things as powerful as that. It's a force to be reckoned with. And yet it seems so fleeting sometimes. Yet we're called to have the same spirit, be unified together because that's what God wants of us. Isn't it crazy that the, one of the last prayers that Jesus ever uttered was that we would be one, like he and the Father are one. That there is a, a sense in which doctrinal purity matters. What we speak about, how we teach, how we speak on behalf of God, it matters, and it matters that we get that right. But not at the expense of being jerks or always divided and fractured over those things. We, have, we uphold gospel doctrine, but we are to be unified like Jesus and the Father. In addition, we are to be sympathetic or to be filled, all of you, have the unity of mind and sympathy. This means that we understand and are aware of others' plights and suffering, that we're not so focused on ourselves that we neglect to care for and think about how things are affecting other people, that we're to think about other people's needs and cares and sorrows. Now, in hard moments... It's really easy to be focused on ourselves, isn't it? Like when things are challenging, like that's often when we have the most amount of grace for someone of like, yeah, they're being selfish, but I kind of get it. I mean, they're, they're going through something right now. Of all the times that we give each other grace, it's, it's when the temperature goes up, when we experience a little heat, when things are hard, and yet we're called as God's people do not be so focused on ourself and our own needs in those moments, but to be sympathetic to one another. Think about Jesus. Of all the moments that we would have cut him some slack, it was probably as he was hanging on the cross, right? And people are mocking him, and they are spitting on him, and they're saying, if you really are who you claim to be, get down from that cross. Show us your power now. And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was sensitive to other plights in perhaps the worst moment of his life. Or just before he died, as he's gasping for breath, he looks on the plight of his mom and he makes sure that she's taken care of. She says to John, this is now your mom. See, being the oldest son, he would have been his responsibility to care for his mother, but as he's dying, he says, John, take care of her. What a beautiful picture of looking out for the needs of others rather than 
ourselves, showing sympathy to others' cares and needs and plights. We're to be characterized, in addition, by brotherly love, a genuine affection for one another. It was Jesus who said, they will know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. Isn't that crazy that he gives the the outside world the power to validate or invalidate whether or not we are truly his disciples? How? By the quality of love that we show one to another and whether or not it reflects his love for us. It's profound, isn't it? It means that there is a culture that is to take root in us as his people. We're to be characterized in addition by a tender heart, literally a heart of compassion. This is like sympathy, but it moves from feelings and understanding to one of action. It actually does something. That you're focused on the needs and desires of other people, not so preoccupied with yourself, so that you actually begin to meet their needs. And then finally, a a humble mind. Kind of the chief virtue of of the Christian life is one of humility which, as C.S. Lewis put, is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less often. Being aware of and focused on God and others, and this actually sets you free. Now, this was a huge break from the way of Rome. See, humility in Rome was considered a vice, not a virtue. Pride was not considered a vice, but rather a virtue that you were to be proud and to display your accomplishments. Humility was seen as as something not to be desired. Not so among God's people, Jesus' people. Humility is our chief virtue. Do you notice a pattern here in in this verse? We are to be others-focused rather than self-focused. We are to be keyed into the needs and desires and wants of other people, and in that we actually find life. This is what I would call a, a countercultural kingdom principle, something that's true but doesn't sound like it's true. The way to find life is to pour your life out. The way to be filled up is not to focus in on your own need and your own self-care, but rather to serve other people, and in that you find life. Now, I know there's been a lot, of, a lot written lately on self-care and making sure that you have a full tank and often that is really right and good but I wonder if we've shifted a little too far and we've just embraced selfishness again and we've forgotten perhaps this kingdom principle now I know mental health is a very real thing I know that 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 making sure that your, your cup is full is an important thing, but one of the countercultural kingdom principles that we are called to, the way that we find life, is not by focusing on ourselves, but others. Just like our Savior. See, there was a time on the way to Jerusalem that Jesus' disciples were arguing about which one was the greatest. And Jesus came and he said this profound thing in Mark chapter 10. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must also be must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Of all the people that could have demanded service, It was God in the flesh. And yet when Jesus came, that was the last thing on his mind. Rather, he poured out his life for us. Now, some of you guys are thinking, well, what what about if that attitude isn't reciprocated? 
I mean, this, this kind of sets up Christians to be taken advantage of. What if you're others-focused, but you find yourself constantly surrounded by people, either inside or outside the church, or inside or outside your family, that are takers, users, willing to suck you dry? Have you ever had kids? I mean, that describes the early years, doesn't it? I'm sorry to your four-month-old. You're just not really filling my tank much, so I'm just going to need a break. It doesn't work, does it? That's not how it is. You pour out and you pour out and you pour out and you get very little back. And yet, sometimes in that, you find life, don't you? And then when your kids become teenagers, they become really cool. And they're fun. Most of the time. But they would probably say the same about me. Verse 9, I think, answers a little bit of that pushback. What if you find yourself in a situation where people aren't, aren't giving back, but, or, or even in a situation where people return your good and your blessing with evil and, and attack? Verse 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. He's saying, as Christians, we don't respond in kind. Rather, even when people hit us with evil, we respond with good and with blessing. Why? Well, the answer's right there. Because God sees, and he will bless you for it. God sees and knows everything, which is beautiful and terrifying. And he will reward you accordingly. Peter grounds this assertion in Psalm chapter 34. He quotes four verses, verses 12 to 16. And he quotes it at length here. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter writes, it has always been the good life to live righteously, to devote oneself to doing good, even if it costs you something, to use your words in a godly way, not speaking evil or speaking falsehood, seeking peace and pursuing it, because God sees and knows everything. His ears are open and attentive to the prayers of the righteous. But to those who do evil and return with evil, you actually have something more than other people to contend with, don't you? You have God to contend with. And let me just say, you're going to lose that one every time. I wouldn't try. Even if it looks like you're winning now to return evil with evil, that's just a short-sighted approach. Because God sees and knows all, and he he rewards accordingly. Which, apart from the gospel of what Jesus has done for us, is utterly terrifying, is it not? Because if we're honest, we all know that apart from what Jesus has done, if we were to have all of our thoughts from the previous week broadcast up on the screen for everyone to see, there would be a lot of shades of red in here, wouldn't there? I know there would on the podium. God sees and knows all and will will reward accordingly is both a comfort for those who live righteously and seek to do good and a warning to those who do not but also something that drives us to our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. But what happens then when you seek to do good 
but you end up suffering anyway? That's the question that he kicks in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you're seeking to do good and living humbly and being seen by God, but you still end up suffering, well, what then? Well, we're told that we should actually expect this. This is what it means to live as a chosen exile here on this world, chosen and privileged by God, and yet not at home in this world. Verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed, i.e. by God, right? These words sound really familiar, don't they? Sounds a lot like what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you when others speak evil of you and do all kinds of things. Blessed are you when you pursue righteousness and, are, and suffer for it, for great will be your reward in heaven. Why? Well, because of what he's just said. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God sees and knows everything, and he rewards accordingly. That This is the same logic that was used previously when speaking to husbands and as he charged them to honor their wives and to live in an understanding way, it was so that God would, be, would have his ears open to their prayers, right? But if you want God against you, then treat your wife shamefully. Don't live in an understanding way. Don't honor her as a, as a co-heir with you in grace. Lord it over her. And then you have God to deal with. And guys, that, that, that's not going to go well. But to those who suffer for doing good, Peter writes, God is with you. He sees and he knows and he will reward accordingly. He will justify you. His ears are open to your prayer. So then in light of that, the end of verse 14. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I want to break this section into two parts because it's easy to just focus on one of them. Part one is how fear of the Lord speaks into our daily fear. And second, evangelism. When we live differently, people notice and we need to be a aware and ready to give a defense of the hope that we have. So first of all, have no fear of them, he writes, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. What does that even mean? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled? Remember how at the beginning of the sermon we talked about how much our life is driven by fear, but now Peter writes, have no fear of them, nor be troubled? I you got to remember that the guy writing this lived this out, didn't he? This is the one who, when Jesus was arrested, he denied even knowing him three different times because he was scared. And he didn't know what was going to happen. And he didn't know what it would cost him to be associated with Jesus in that moment. But then just a few months later, Peter, standing before the very council and, and authority that condemned Jesus to death, when, when told and commanded by them not to speak or preach in the name of Jesus anymore, his response was, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen 
and heard. His response, you're crazy if you think I'm going to obey you rather than God. How did he get there? The key is verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What does that even mean? Perhaps the NIV helps us make sense of this. He says, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. What does that mean? It means that that Christ is the one that we are to fear. He is the one that we revere to acknowledge his lordship over everything, to consider him holy. We revere and we worship him, not anything else. We fear him, not other men. This is the key to fearlessness, to acknowledge the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm his. Everything about me it's his. Everything that I own is not mine. I just manage it. It's on loan from him. My very life is his. I have been purchased with his precious blood. And so in a very real way, he knows uh, my, my, the day of my birth. He knows the day of my death and pretty much everything else about me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so in a very real way, I am immortal until he determines otherwise. You can't touch me until he says, it's time to go home. Well, I can suffer, but ultimately I'm immortal until he calls me home, right? Now that truth can be abused and misused. Like, it's not a call to just go play around and play tag in the street, right? I mean, in the same way, like, Satan tempted Jesus by bringing him to the top of the temple and saying, jump off and see if God catches you. And he quotes scripture, says, don't put the Lord to the test. That's a way to abuse that particular truth. That's not what it means here when we say we're immortal until God calls us home. It means, though, that we should not live in fear, especially of death, because God is going to put us here for as long as he wants us here. And he is sovereign over those things. We fear and revere him so we don't have to fear and revere anything else. So I don't need to live in fear. And I don't need to fret. And I don't need to get mine now. And I don't need to be justified in other people's eyes because I'm his. I've set apart him as holy. I revere him and him alone. I'm his. I'm loved. And that's enough. In fact, that's about as good as it gets. And so that frees me from the fear of man and allows me to boldly devote myself to doing good to being about the things of his kingdom and to choose to live my life as a blessing to others as he calls me to. Now the second thing, do you know what that kind of life does? It gets noticed. It gets noticed. It, it, it strikes people as, as different. That's the rest of verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Or as the NIV says it, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Get ready to tell other people about the hope that you have in Christ, because if you're living the way that God has called you to live in this fearless, joy-filled, hopeful way, it gets noticed when we're not driven by the same fears as everyone else, when our souls are at rest and there is a hopeful fearlessness about us, others are going to ask, what makes you that way? Why are you so different? What are you hoping in? 
How can you be so keyed in on other people and rather than yourself? Why are you willing to suffer? And yet, even in the midst of your suffering, you remain so hopeful. And in that moment, our answer is, Jesus, he's why. He gives me hope. He saved me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made by him. He made me the way that he wanted me to be. They died to save me and to redeem me. And because of what he has done in God's eyes, I am justified, I am righteous, I am his. And if God thinks that way about me, it doesn't matter how you respond to me. It doesn't matter what you think of me. Now, I still want to be seen as good in your eyes, I guess, but not ultimately. It's not crushing if I'm not. Guys, our, our lives preach. Our lives preach. That doesn't mean that our mouths are off the hook to share the words of good news. I mean, the, the gospel is words. It is news about what Jesus has done. We can't do that with our actions. We, we might just come across as really nice Buddhists. We have to speak. But our lives matter. That, that, that when we live the life that God has called us to live in hopeful fearlessness, in others-focused humility, people will ask, what's different about you? And in that moment, we need to be ready. We need to be ready to give an answer for that hope. Now, it doesn't promise that people will always respond well. In fact, verses 16 and 17 tell us that it'll be quite different, actually. That many people will misunderstand and continue to revile us. But when we share the hope that we have in Christ, we, as God's people, become hope bringers, good news sharers. We become witnesses of what we have seen and heard. So let's pull it all together. We are called to live with an others-centered, humble sincerity, a, a fearless hopelessness, or hopefulness. <laughs> That's very different. A fearless hopefulness. And when we do this, we will suffer, but we will also bear witness to a greater life than our own. When we aren't driven by the same fears as others, we will be asked to share about the hope that we have. And in that moment, we can bear testimony about Jesus. Which kind of makes some sense about why we're still here then, doesn't it? Have you ever thought about that? Like, after saving us, why would God cause us to continue living in this broken, fallen world? Why would we continue to suffer? I mean, if it was all just about us, he'd take us home, wouldn't he? Or, or at least he would come back and restore all things and make things right once and for all. Why does he delay? Peter actually reflects on that in his next letter. Did you know that? Chapter 3, verse 8. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is, a, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why does he delay? So that all those that he has chosen, all those that he has died for and redeemed will believe and come to know him. Repent and trust the good news of the gospel. How are they going to find out about it? You and me. We're his plan. We're God's plan A. That's what Romans 10 tells us. He says, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe of him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written... How beautiful are the feet 
of those who preach the good news. God has left us here, you here, me here, us here, to devote ourselves to doing good. And while that's certainly not limited to evangelism, it certainly means evangelism and telling people about Jesus, the sharing of this good news. I know for many of you, when the word evangelism comes up, like that's scary. It feels overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. Remember that revering Christ as Lord sets us free from fear. And it asks us, really, what's the worst that could happen? I might be killed for my allegiance to Jesus. That was a very real fear for those in Peter's day. But if you're killed, then you get to go and be with Jesus. And the inheritance that he has won for you that will never spoil or perish or fade will be yours. What do we have to fear of death? I would say most of you here are not really scared of death, per se, but you're like, I, I do fear losing relationships that are dear to me. I, I do fear losing my job. I do fear losing the respect of people that I've worked years to gain their respect. I do fear being rejected and alone. Guys, I get that. I get it. Sometimes our allegiance to Jesus can cause others that we love to reject us. But at the end of the day, he's worth it. He is. Sometimes our allegiance to Jesus causes us to be less promotable at work. But would you want to gain the whole world and forfeit your own soul? Would that trade-off actually be worth it? Just go down the line of that thing. I don't think it would. I don't think it's worth it. Sometimes our allegiance to Jesus will cause us to lose the status and the respect of people that we want to respect us. But again, we must return to the gospel truth of whose affirmation would we rather have, God's or theirs? And if we have the affirmation of the Lord in Christ, then the reality is we can face a lot of rejection and be just fine. It hurts, it stings, but we'll be okay. Because the only one whose opinion of us that really matters has already given his verdict, and it's good. So when we live with that kind of hope-filled fearlessness, others will notice. Let me, let me make this as tangible as possible. Step one for you, revere Christ as Lord above all. Settle that in your heart. Seek to please him above all. Step two, when people ask you about that, be ready to give an answer of the hope that you have. As a church... Our mission is to glorify God by multiplying gospel-centered disciples, small groups, and churches that bless the city, the region, and the world. That's why we exist together. That's what we unify around. It's our shared mission, to be a blessing and to share the hope that we have in Jesus. I just want to give you some language maybe for this year that might be helpful for your prayers or helpful in your thinking about all of these things of how do you live that out in a tangible way. Everyone reach one. Every city group multiply and start a new church. Those are our goals. Everyone reach one. Ask the Lord to give you an opportunity to share the hope that you have in him with maybe one of the three to five people that you regularly pray for, that are close to you but far from God. How amazing would it be if every one of us had a story of someone close to us this year that came to know Jesus because we shared the hope that we have in him with them? We wouldn't have room to put everybody, would we? be amazing. I hope we have that problem. Be the best year of our existence. Everyone reach one is, is a lofty goal, but like that just makes it tangible for every single one of us, doesn't it? 
God, is there one person that I could reach out to this month? Is there one person that maybe this year might come to know you and find the hope in Jesus that I've found? That's what loving people do. Maybe it's as simple as just try to invite someone once a month or, or try to engage in a spiritual conversation with someone who's close to you but far from God once a month and see what God does. Pray like crazy for it and see what God does. Second, every city group multiplies. Our city groups are where we kind of find that connection and that community at the, at the grassroots level. What would it look like for you to begin in your city group having a conversation about how do we start another one to create room for the people that God wants to save? Is that comfortable? No, but neither is 30 people in a living room, right? No one gets to talk anymore. Who are we going to have to raise up to send out to do that? Begin having those conversations. And then, as a matter of prayer, maybe just say, God, would this be the year that we plant another church to create room for people to come to know him, that we might share the hope that we have? In our 16-year history, we, by God's grace, have been able to plant four other churches. Three of them are still going. Plant or replant ones. Uh, we, we've, by God's grace, been able to grow to three different campuses. Uh, this is our strategy to saturate the twin ports with the, with the good news of the gospel by saturating little communities of light, ordinary people that aren't all that extraordinary but serve an extraordinary God. You know, it's been like eight years since we planted a church. We've, we've started campuses, but like sent off a church. What, what if we prayed that, God, would this be the year that we could send one out to reach people that we won't reach, to create room? I know that's, that sounds big and lofty, but that's what we're trying to do together. That's why God has caused us to link arms with one another, not just for our godliness and sanctification and growth, but so that the, the world might know, that the people that you know and love that don't currently know Jesus might find him, and there'd be room for them. Now, this mission has been happening for 2,000 years, and so what we're doing isn't novel. It's simply taking responsibility for our little corner of the globe at our particular time in history to make Jesus known and to share the hope that we have in him. Peter was part of the initial 120 people praying scared in an upper room and then the Holy Spirit came and everything changed. And at this particular moment where he's writing, the gospel had expanded throughout the Roman Empire, but it was a small little minority people that was marginalized and blamed for everything. Within 300 years, it would take over the whole empire. And now, 2,000 years later, no one thinks about the Roman kingdom anymore. No one thinks about the British empire anymore. And if the Lord tarries, people won't think of America much in a couple hundred years. But you know what will stand the test over all of those empires that come and go? God's kingdom. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Guys, we get to be part of that. It, it is happening. And it's happening through ordinary people like you and me. How amazing is that, that God lets us participate in what he's doing? So, so this week, set apart Christ as holy. Fear him so that you don't fear anything else. And be ready. Pray and be ready. See what God does. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for how it shapes us, forms us, encourages us, provokes us. God, we long to be a people that live with such a humble, fearless hopefulness 
that people ask us about why. Lord, would you help us to be ready, and would you give us opportunities this week to share the hope we have in Christ. It's in his name. Amen.